Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to January 2021's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. And new year, new format. We're going to go with a slightly different format this year. And as a result, I would like to introduce you to my guest presenter, Cormac O'Lara. Cormac's got 10 years experience in the Chinese battery industry. And I think he's a a great guy for me to have on as my co-presenter. So Cormac, welcome. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for the uh, invite to join you. I've been following your uh, podcast for a while now, actually, and uh, listened to it religiously. So it was nice you reached out to me and asked uh, if I was interested in in joining you for an episode. Oh, brilliant. Well, a fan then. That's great. I think we'll just uh, sort of kick off with actually something that you put on LinkedIn, which is this sort of quite interesting takeaway headline that been more capacity of battery factories announced in China this year than have been announced in Europe in the entire last 10 years. That was quite a, an interesting sort of takeaway headline. Yeah, yeah. Battery f- factory announcements in China don't grab the headlines as much as the European announcements, but they're quite significant, actually. And I just thought I'd, I'd uh, highlight it on LinkedIn, especially because um, I've seen a lot of people very interested in lithium-ion batteries on LinkedIn. Uh, and they, uh, I tend to cover the Chinese uh, battery industry. And uh, so we're quite excited by all the announcements that are coming in for China. One difference between these and some of the European announcements is that they are from, uh, from established companies, uh, not just uh, startups. They're companies that are involved maybe in the EV industry, the solar industry, the metals industry, who are now taking a keen interest in the uh, lithium-ion battery. One big difference is they have funding, or a certain amount of funding and capital available for developing these uh, new battery factories in China. I think one of the things that sort of stands out the most is that I think you said that something like 50% of the capacity has been announced by just five companies. So, I mean, a lot of these things are, are pretty large scale developments. Yeah. And all these companies have built factories in the past. So they're not new players. They've built factories uh, like, say, for example, Narada, who's a, a small player, but a big player in energy storage. But they're going to be a uh, developing a two gigawatt hour factory. And that's uh, something well within their capability. And uh, we expect, we have an announcement, we expect it actually, uh, you know, to come online also. So the difference between these and the European announcements is, you know, great announcements, but we're not sure, are they really going to come online? Because the kind of experience uh, for putting factories in place, battery factories in place in Europe is lacking compared to what's available in China. I guess that's a really important takeaway. And in fact, that's one of the the things that we've picked up a lot in our outlook for the year, which is in this issue. And I think another key issue in Europe, which I'd like to sort of just discuss with you, is this issue of human resource management and the fact that there aren't really that many people with experience of starting up battery factories. Given the disparity in the capacity that's coming on, is that an issue that you see emerging in China going forward as well? Hard to say about in the human resources area. Originally, a lot of these Chinese battery factories got up and going by hiring some of the Korean and Japanese talent. Currently, the Europeans are also competing for the same talent pool. 
for example, LG Chem has been in uh, Hungary for a while now, and uh, they are producing a significant amount of batteries there. And the uh, the Hungarian engineers are are, are trained up in a, a high quality lithium ion battery manufacturing. I think that would be a pool uh, that the new uh, lithium ion battery uh, factories can draw from, from. For the high quality mass scale battery manufacturing, if you're quite serious about it, you tend to go to, for the Japanese or Korean former employees of Samsung or LG Chem or SK Innovation or even Panasonic. That's interesting. And I mean, it's certainly something that we see really across the battery space and in the raw materials area as well, particularly in sort of lithium, graphite, manganese. Nobody really has an awful lot of experience or there isn't a, a deep pool of human resources with regards to sort of bringing these operations into production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been hearing that for a while. It's you know, it's a whole new industry yeah, that's trying to go from zero to 100 miles an hour in a very short period of time. And it's a lot of it's going to be learning on the job, really, in all segments of the battery industry, right up to electric vehicles also. And I guess that sort of could bring us on to the next sort of really interesting talking point from December, which is the well, research by two major research houses in the industry. First of all, Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, which suggested that the price of lithium-ion cells has decreased to about $110 per kilowatt hour in 2020. That's down from $290 in, in 2014. And in their piece, they really warned about the shortage of raw materials and, and, and how that could drive prices up. And then if you contrast that with the study by uh, BNEF, Bloomberg New Energy Finance. So they talked about pack prices averaging $137 per kilowatt hour. And they actually talked about cell prices around about $100 per kilowatt hour, which was less than Benchmark was suggesting. But those are some quite interesting takeaways given the direction of travel and the focus of the EV markets and economics, et cetera. The battery prices have been falling significantly for the last 10 years. There's only uh, so much that uh, the, the, the price can fall. And the originally, the original goal uh, that was uh, laid out by the Department of Energy in the US was the, the famous 100 US dollars per kilowatt hour. That was back in uh, 2014, 2013. And it was just, there was a number of goals on that, such as 80% capacity retention, 7,000 cycles, uh, some, uh, some really at the time, were goals that were going to be difficult to achieve. And, uh, you know, it's quite surprising that we're getting close to the 100 kilowatt hour, US dollar per kilowatt hour uh, goal uh, so quickly. One of the goals that you, uh, that's laid out by the Department of Energy is in, in the timescale is the 125 US dollars per kilowatt hour in 2022. It looks like we're well on course to, uh, to meet that goal. And it's, it's quite a, Interesting that the, uh, the lithium-ion battery industry is uh, laid out goals and it's responding to the goals and it's meeting its targets in much more timely uh, manner than we anticipated. And so in that respect, it's looking quite good for the industry. And I understand the, uh, the concerns of Benchmark regarding the limitations on the availability of uh, certain raw materials, namely the materials for the uh, cathode side. For me, that's the, the biggest risk. And I, I guess the big question is, how many more sort of manufacturing economies of scale are viable and will that be enough to offset higher raw material prices? And one of the things that Bloomberg said in their 
release was that they said that even if raw material prices returned to the levels seen in 2018, they didn't see it being a, a big issue. But one of the key issues going forward is nickel and the 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 overriding chemistry in EV batteries now are nickel-rich batteries. And of course, the last time that the nickel price peaked was in 2015, and that was materially higher. That was multiples of the current nickel price, much higher than nickel prices were in sort of 2018 and in fact now. So from my point of view, that's a big risk that if raw material prices go up, is that going to, well, how much is that going to raise battery prices? Yeah, I saw that in the BNF article also. They have that. They had the, in their 2019 uh, study on battery prices, they had this tool they call the battery price sensitivity tool. And it, you know, evaluated the, the effect of, you know, if you double the price of lithium, what would the effect be on uh, battery prices? In their examples, they have if, if for lithium, if it increases 50%, they, it'll only increase the battery price by uh, 4%. And uh, even doubling cobalt prices will increase the uh, battery price by 3%. That's been looked at by some other researchers since then. There's a good study that came out of Meat actually this month. So right along the question that you're asking, where they evaluated the difference on the cell level going from NMC 622 to the higher nickel 811. So in that case, you uh, you reduce your manganese and cobalt by half and increase your nickel. And they found that per kilowatt hour, uh, it was about nine US dollars difference going from 622 to 811 on the, on the uh, cell level. As I said, so that's a half the cobalt, half the manganese, and increase in nickel at 20%. You're only paying a $9 penalty, which I looked at earlier, and the factors in, so it goes to about uh, 9 million USD per gigawatt hour. The cost can get quite large. It seems small when you, uh, and that 9 USD per kilowatt hour is uh, basically equivalent to 6% or, or 6 to 8%. Those percentages are quite large, uh, add up and to be quite large on, uh, on the mass scale. Uh, manufacturing uh, gigawatt hours of batteries you can add to significant sums. I guess that sort of discussion of high nickel batteries and the cost of them kind of feeds into an area which I personally think is going to be quite important in 2021, which is sort of the costs of different chemistries. And a lot of Autos analysts in Europe are suggesting that LFP could be the answer. And, and in fact, a lot of Chinese manufacturers are, are looking into using LFP, which is a situation really we never saw coming sort of last year and the year before. Given that LFP is so much more common in China, could you sort of just give us a quick outline in terms of how LFP is developing? LFP is in vogue at the moment. So 811 was the cathode chemistry of, of all the, uh, you know, uh, the star of 2019. And now LFP is the, was 2020, and it will remain to see where it finishes up in 2021. But we've noticed, like, for example, all the, the, the Chinese EV startups uh, are, are focusing and shifting, uh, having a look at utilizing LFP in their products. NEO is the latest to join the bunch and uh, looking at uh, utilizing uh, CATL's LFP uh, batteries for some of their models. So it looks like LFP is going to, LFP's penetration into the EV market in China grew last year by, I think, over 20%. It could go to higher levels during 2021. And it's forecasted that we might see LFP versus NMC 50-50 in the market in the future. Unless there's substantial cost reductions with the NMC chemistry, uh, LFP will definitely uh, play a, a growing role. 
which we, as you mentioned, we did not see coming uh, 18 months ago. And, and I think it's quite interesting that, for instance, uh, Tesla, which has very much been the, the champion of uh, sort of uh, high nickel batteries and increased range, actually adopted LFP for some of its made in China Model 3s. That just opened the floodgates. If it's good enough for Tesla, it's uh, good enough for everybody else. So uh, Volkswagen also looking at LFP and some of the other German uh, big three are also looking at LFP. If you enter the market two years ago with an LFP battery pack as an EV startup that wasn't catering to uh, the lower end, you wouldn't have probably got any funding. And I've yet to see, uh, actually be interesting to see if any EV startup pops up this year, totally uh, based around the LFP format. But um, uh, so, you know, as you mentioned with Tesla, they clearly define there's going to be levels to the electric vehicle industry. Now, you're going to have a lower tier for your robo taxis right up to your Cybertruck and uh, different chemistries will be applied uh, throughout. So this is a role for all the chemistries. I think the the issue with LFP for any sort of non-experts listening is that LFP generally has a slightly lower energy density at the cell level, although uh, increasingly not quite so much at the pack level. And also it has a, uh, a lower range associated with it. Do you want to just talk a little bit more about the sort of... Well, yeah. well there's a number of types of LFP also. There's, you know, there's a number of types of NMC and there's a number of type of LFP materials also. And there's your basic low energy density and there's uh, different versions of that uh, that are higher in energy density. So when we hear LFP, it's not a blanket LFP across the market. There's a number of patents. There's two very famous patents on LFP. There's the A123 type LFP and there's the, um, the Fostec LFP. So then there's a, a number of Chinese variants on LFP also. So it's not one blanket material actually uh, across the board. And we're increasingly hearing now about this LFMP with, uh, with manganese that could be the next generation of, of LFP. What, what are the key aspects of that as a, as a chemistry? The higher voltage, it's uh, so the limit, as you mentioned, the basic problem with issue with LFP was the energy density you have because of the lower voltage is one of the factors that would yield a low energy density. But uh, with the increased voltage with the LFMP, I think it goes to 3.7 volts, or traditionally LFP is about 3.2 volts and nominal voltage. So you'll get a lot more energy out of it. That is uh, one, all behind the adoption of various chemistries lies the uh, government policies and government subsidies. So to qualify going forward, even in China next year, there'll be reduction of uh, government subsidies and LFP, basic LFP does not qualify for subsidies unless you do what BYD have been doing and CATL, which is removing modules and making LFP battery packs. And when you have a, so the subsidies for the battery pack and you can increase the energy density of the battery pack that way. Uh, so there's a, m- a number of motivations to uh, shifting or uh, going to higher uh, energy density LFP, not just for your consumers, but also uh, to uh, get some of the government subsidies um, in China. Okay. And let's just sort of lead into the sort of uh, global EV sales, because uh, I think it would be remiss if we didn't mention the huge acceleration in uh, plug-in EV sales in the latter part of the year. And global PEV sales hit a a record level of about 414,000 units in November, with both Europe and Chinese sales hitting a monthly record. 
I mean, I'll talk a little bit about Europe in a second, but what are you thinking in China for 2021, 2022 in terms of government support and, and actually sort of mass market demand for EVs? The Chinese markets are quite interesting. So it's going to be 20% reduction uh, for um, battery subsidies uh, next year. And that will change depending on what industry and buses, for example, and commercial vehicles, uh, there'll be no change. But uh, it's still a subsidy driven industry. And we see that same in Europe because you just mentioned the big push in November, December in EV sales. It also coincides with there'll be, you know, the, at the end of 2021 and in some cases in the beginning of 2021, certain uh, purchase incentives and tax exemptions and subsidies in Europe will, will be removed. So that's why there was a, it was a very good time to start buying in December and taking deliveries. But, um, you know, we still have to see if this market can stand on its own. It's been driven by subsidies for the last uh, couple of years. Similar to what we just saw in Europe, which is basically double in EV sales between 2019 and 2020, we saw the same in China back in 2017, where uh, there was a double in the EV sales. And that was uh, uh, right at the prime time when the uh, subsidies were at their highest. And uh, once the subsidies started uh, wearing off, we haven't seen uh, our sorry, being reduced. We haven't seen a, a doubling of the Chinese EV market. The sales this year were more or less the same as, uh, we're lucky, more or less the same uh, in China as the uh, sales last year, and which weren't much, uh, you know, 2018 was a bumper year also for EV sales. And there's only about 150,000 difference between the EV sales in uh, 2020 versus 2018 in China. So it's uh, stabilized slightly in China over the last three years. Um, We're expecting 2021 will be another bumper year for EV sales in China because the models are... First of all, Tesla, uh, the Model 3, the Model Y is coming out. And then there's a huge increase in the numbers of uh, smaller EVs available in China, which uh, says the Mini, that are really uh, having quite large sales in China. And there's a, a number of producers of these smaller EVs uh, aimed at the urban market. Their sales are, are expected to grow uh, quite significantly during uh, 2021. So, I mean, I think in Europe, uh, we're very excited about the outlook for, for 2021. A, a number of EV launches that were planned for 2020 got delayed because of the pandemic. And I think that's been pushed into, into 2021. We've still got very strong both carrot and stick government support for, for the industry. So on the carrot side, we've got subsidies from most of the major economies up to 5,000 euros a vehicle. And then on the stick side, we've got these CO2 regulations, which are really forcing the the European OEMs or the OEMs selling in Europe to have a certain percentage of their sales as electric vehicles or, or clean vehicles. So from the point of view of the of the subsidy side, it's going strong in Europe next year, and we're expecting a, a bumper year for EVs. Obviously, this industry is is going to succeed or fail, though, not on subsidies, but on, on actual mass market demand from the consumer. And I think it's going to be a very interesting year in 2021. At the moment, the average median sort of selling price of EVs in Europe is about 30 to 35,000 pounds or effectively euros per unit. And mass market for internal combustion engine vehicles is about £15,000 per unit. So we need to see prices coming down. And in fact, there's going to be a key launch in Europe next year, which is the Dacia Spring, which is going right. to retail at about €20,000 per vehicle, which with subsidies will bring it down to 15000 So I think that's going to be a really interesting brake model. You know what the range in that's going to be? 
it's quite low. So it comes on, it's, uh, it's actually an adaptation of, of a model, I think, that Renault had in China. And it's quite a low range product. I think it's, it's yeah. sub 200, 200 kilometers off the top of my head. But, you know, if you look at daily commuting mileage in Europe, we're talking less than 50 kilometers for a daily commute on average. In the UK, it's even lower. So to some extent, I think the range, the whole range issue in EVs, particularly in the European market, is a, is a little bit overdone. I, I can see it being an issue in, for instance, the North American markets where driving distances are much further. But in, in Europe and Asia, I don't think range is so much of a problem. That's why I was saying those new, the mini EVs are storming up the uh, sales uh, tables in China uh, during 2021 or during 2020. And uh, a lot of automakers are interested in getting into this market, which is, you know, the like quite similar to the uh, smart car, uh, just two seater uh, mini EVs will uh, run around the city. And so this sounds like the Dacia is going for the same market almost or similar market, the small EV. One of the things that I'm interested in was, is, um, so the EVs are, 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 are taking a larger percentage of the auto market every year, but the auto market's shrinking, right? For, for the last four years, overall automotive market has been shrinking. And I think it's down 14 or 15% this year. So we're all you know, delighted that EVs are, are selling an, an increasing percentage, but this market is just shrinking year after year. And it, it's a new auto market, I think. So the goals of replacing all ICE vehicles uh, to the same size market, I think, is uh, is not going to be where we end up in the future. I think um, it's a, it's a new industry, basically, that we're uh, entering. Yeah. I mean, I certainly agree with that. I mean, I, I, I work, I advise a, a hedge fund which has a, an energy component, and I think it's very interesting. You know, a lot of people say that EVs are, are the death knell for oil, but they won't be probably for about... 10 to 15 years, because if you look at the size of the global car park, it's something like a billion, a billion units. And uh, yeah, billion units. You know, we've sold, what, 5 million EVs over the last 10 years or something. So um, yeah. it's going to take a, a, a long while before oil demand is, is reduced enormously, mm-hmm. should we say. These cars will be scrapped, but they won't be replaced. Is what, uh, uh, some of the studies uh, and some of the thoughts that the automotive industry is just naturally shrinking as people are urbanizing. We're going with ride, ride sharing and uh, autonomous vehicles that, uh, you know, the, the global inventory is going to be shrinking for sure. I think the major OEMs are still viewing this market as a traditional ICE automotive market where families are going to have one or two cars. I don't think that's going to be the future. There's a lot of room for these new startups to, to uh, such as what Tesla have done, which they're inventing the industry and reinventing the industry. And the OEMs have just left uh, stumbling and following behind. Interesting takeaway. Before we sort of go on to our interview, I just want to talk uh, briefly about the stationary storage market because there was a very interesting report out on the California stationary storage market by the California Energy Storage Alliance in December, which flagged that the state could need up to 11 gigawatts of long duration storage by 2030 and potentially as much as 55 gigawatts by 2045. Now, that's multiples of what um, it had previously targeted. And just to flag, long duration storage is, um, is storage which has a longer life. So, for instance, your, your standard lithium-ion battery has a one to two hour duration. 
Whereas there are a number of technologies out in the market like vanadium redox flow batteries and, and zinc batteries that have a much longer duration, five hours, 10 hours, even 15 hours. And I think this has very big implications for the technology and the growth around VRFBs and other long duration storage technologies. Yeah. Do you have a view yeah. on that? I saw the uh, announcement and the uh, and the Department of Energy have issued a roadmap for energy storage for the first time. So that was in 2020. And uh, so it's laid out uh, kind of a roadmap of how, where we need to go and where we need to get there. And w- one of the most important, uh, crucial aspects is the cost. So they forecast for 2030 that a, the levelized cost of storage for long duration, if you want to make it viable and economical, uh, will be, uh, has, to, has to get quite low. Energy storage, not uh, renewable generation. Uh, so as you mentioned, batteries are one option. But the, the, the price is like five US uh, cents per kilowatt hour. Uh, which is, uh, you know, very uh, much lower than the current costs of for lithium-ion battery energy storage, and this is uh, one one of the reasons that um, people believe that lithium-ion storage is not s- suitable uh, for long duration. I'm not, not one of those people, but as you mentioned earlier, lithium-ion has certain applications. It can you can do lithium-ion storage for 15 minutes, for a half hour, all the way up to four hours. That's commonly used. And once you go to higher storage durations, then the costs add up and it's not economical to uh, you know, plant these many batteries in a field. It's just more expensive than using an alternative long duration or a peaker plant, for example. But uh, you know, battery costs have been coming down a lot, as we just discussed earlier from BNF and uh, Benchmark, and will continue to come down. So the current costs for lithium-ion battery energy storage right now are somewhere between 20 and 30 US cents per kilowatt hour. And we're, as you just mentioned earlier, Matt, we're right on the fine lines of how low we can get lithium-ion batteries. Ultimate goal is to get towards 80 US dollars per kilowatt hour. Some of the LFP uh, sales are very close to that number that we've seen during 2020. So it's, it's not going to be impossible for lithium-ion batteries to economically satisfy uh, these uh, long duration storage demands. And during the uh, California uh, request for proposals, most of the proposals that went in were for lithium-ion battery technologies. But traditionally, lithium-ion batteries don't really operate above, haven't been deployed for uh, operations above four hours. But there, you know, there's a few, a few uh, deployments, uh, most notably in New York, where there's an eight-hour duration. So long storage uh, energy storage uh, duration is from eight hours on. It could be eight. There's no actually clear definition. It could be eight hours to a thousand hours, depending. But uh, it's not just uh, aimed for lithium-ion battery storage. As you mentioned, it could be for uh, flow batteries. There's a, a gravity uh, energy storage. There's a, um, and the main technology for pump store, uh, energy storage, which is pumped hydro. And then room for novel uh, uh, storage technologies like uh, compressed air. It's not aimed directly at lithium-ion batteries, but lithium-ion batteries are beginning to dominate the uh, energy storage scene, especially in uh, our industry, especially in the U.S. Yeah, and I, I think that's fair. And I mean, I think there certainly has been some dominance for lithium-ion in, in new large-scale projects that have, have been announced over the last sort of couple of years. I personally am quite excited about some of the potential of some of these flow batteries out there. They don't uh, degrade as fast as lithium-ion. And, uh, you know, they are fully 
fully recyclable, which I think is a is a key issue going forward for the industry. And on top of that, uh, I mean, particularly with with vanadium, the industry has has sort of seen the issues with um, the uh, volatility of vanadium prices, and we now get this sort of uh, vanadium leasing methodology, which allows companies to reduce the upfront cost of, of vanadium in the battery. So I, you know, I'm quite excited about the potential for vanadium flow batteries, potentially for chromium flow batteries. And, and there's also some interesting zinc technologies out there. But what we are really lacking in many of these long duration storage solutions is effectively the gigafactory moment. It's somebody to actually come in and, and invest large scale to allow manufacturing costs for these, these, yeah. uh, these solutions to fall very substantially, like we've well, seen yeah. in lithium ion. The lithium ion for energy storage is just a byproduct of the EV in, uh, industry at the moment. So they're just living off the scaling and adoption and subsidy, subsidizing of the EV industry. And, uh, uh, and that's been benefiting the energy storage industry with the low cost batteries that are available. But the energy storage for lithium ion is uh, you know, shifting towards uh, the uh, lithium iron phosphate now. So traditionally, Energy storage uh, uh, developers use NMC or LFP, but LFP was uh, readily available for the last couple of years. But now that it's becoming more uh, adopted in the EV industry, it's becoming harder and harder for the energy storage guys to get their hands on on LFP batteries. And so there will not be a, a 55 gigawatt hours of uh, batteries available for this California deployment uh, using lithium ion unless, as you said, there's a dedicated gigafactory or whatever it is, whatever the technology is going to be for this industry, rather than relying on the byproduct of another industry. And just as an aside, the other attraction of, of LFP as opposed to NMC in, in storage batteries is the um, greater sort of thermal stability and, and less risk of battery fires, which is a, is a key consideration, I think. Yeah, well... There's still a debate in the industry where, you know, NMC can be just safe. You know, there's, there's camps, there's NMC camps and there's LFP camps. And uh, so technically all lithium ion batteries can be made safe. But uh, LFP on a fundamental level is more thermally stable. Yeah. OK, I think we will call it a day there. Cormac, thanks very much mm-hmm. for joining us this month. And uh, we hope you'll join us next month. So thanks very much to Cormac. And if you have any questions on any of the topics we've covered in the podcast, please contact me or you can find more information on our website at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm delighted today to be joined by Stephen Biggins, Managing Director of Core Lithium. It looks very likely to me that Core could be the next cab off the rank in terms of Australian hard rock lithium projects with its finest projects in Australia's Northern Territory. Stephen, welcome to Recharge. Thanks, Matt. We look forward to sharing some more information about the project and the company with you. Great. So it's fair to say I think that it's been a whirlwind few months for Core, with the share price up over 300%. So I think there's a fair amount to talk about. Could we just start with the updated feasibility study you released in 2020? Can you give us a a quick summary of the startup CapEx and the estimated OPEX and the rest of the details? Yeah, it has been a very exciting uh, start to uh, 2021. It should be be a very uh, exciting year for us. As you said, the project's uh, feasibility Studies have highlighted that um, CORE is looking to build one of the most capital efficient lithium projects in Australia. And 
have operating costs that are going to be very competitive with the, with the rest of our peers in, in Australia. From a startup capex perspective, the, the capex is, is around 80 to 85 million Australian dollars, enabling the company to produce at least 175,000 tonnes per annum of high-quality lithium concentrate out of Darwin Port. And from, a, from an operating cost perspective, we haven't disclosed those operating costs to market for the project, and we're working on a feasibility update at the moment that should get released next quarter, which will, which will outline those in detail. But we'd expect our, our C1 cash costs to be very competitive with the rest of, uh, of the market in Australia. Great. Thanks very much. And I think it's fair to say that you've got quite a significant infrastructure advantage compared to many other hard rock projects, given the project's geographical location. Could you just explain that to us and give us an idea of the free onboard cost advantages of that geographical location? Yeah, that's right. The core is developing one of Australia's highest grade lithium resources only 25 kilometres away from Darwin Port, which is Australia's closest ports to markets in Asia. The advantages of that are obviously in the transport cost from both the mine to port, which is about $7 US a tonne, so only $7 US a tonne to move material from mine to port. And then we're Australia's closest port to, to markets in Asia. So the project has, because of its location, would suggest that the best logistics chain to connection to, to markets in Asia. The other part of the infrastructure, if you like, that, that works to our advantage is that um, our workforce will be housed residentially in, in, in Darwin City, which is only 45 minutes drive away, so it's a, it's a daily commute. That flows into uh, to lower sort of operating costs and people costs and, and probably better workforce wellbeing as well. So... I think one criticism that you hear around of the Finnis project is that it's got quite a small reserve and only a seven-year mine life currently. Could you talk a little bit about the expiration potential of the project? I understand you've got other sort of pegmatite occurrences around the existing project area. That's right. The project area has got a, got a history of over 100 years of uh, tin and tantalum mining of lithium-rich pegmatites. So we know there are hundreds of lithium-rich pegmatites through the large 500 square kilometres of tenure that the company owns. We will be continuing the resource growth that we've shown to date for the project, and we increased the resources by 50% uh, in 2020. As we continue on advancing the project, we will continue to deliver significant resource growth for the project through drilling those other well-known lithium-rich pegmatites at the front end of that is, is increase in expanding the existing resources and ore bodies and reserves uh, that we know of the project at, um, at Grants, Carlton, uh, BP33 and Hangong, for instance. But alongside that, we'll be, be undertaking more brownfields and greenfields exploration to continue to grow the resources and, and the reserves of the project. The project shouldn't be seen to be finite. We expect this project to to form the basis of a very long-term lithium-producing asset out of northern Australia. And how much is it costing you sort of in exploration costs to, to expand and extend the resource? Sure. So the success we've had to date is it's, you know, it's less than a dollar a tonne 
to uh, explore and find and define high-quality lithium resources on the, on the project. Investment we've got planned in the project in exploration and resource growth over the next 18 months, we've got a really target to, uh, to double both the, the life of mine and the resources of the project. Okay, so uh, let's t- talk a little bit about the CapEx. 85 million Aussie dollars makes this one of the cheapest greenfield hard rock projects around at the moment. Can you just explain why that is so low? Yeah, there's two factors that feed into that low capex. First of those is that we can produce a high-quality lithium concentrate through simple DMS gravity separation, and that reflects the the metallurgy of of the pegmatites. So the spodumene, the lithium in the system is is all in spodumene, and that spodumene separates very well from the quartz and feldspar in the pegmatite. So the mineralogy, so firstly, the inherent mineralogy of the project enables us to produce a high-quality concentrate using simple gravity separation. So that avoids the need for flotation, which avoids about two-thirds of the capex required for a processing plant that requires both DMS and flotation. From our perspective, that significantly decreases capex, but also the finance cost and the operating risk and operating cost that goes with flotation. So, So that first one is concentrate through DMS processing. The second one is goes back to the project's location, which is 45 minutes drive from a capital city. We don't need to build whole roads. They already exist and government maintained. Airstrips, we're an hour's drive from an international airport and 45 minutes drive from all that uh, capital city infrastructure. So that's all infrastructure that exists. It doesn't need to be on our balance sheet, and that's to the advantage of our, our shareholders in developing one of Australia's most capital-efficient lithium projects. Okay, thanks very much. I mean, that that is a huge sort of differentiating factor that you uh, mm. you mentioned there. So I think it's fair to say that the market's quite excited about the offtake announcements that you've made. Can you give a little bit more colour on your partners? Sure. In the last uh, couple of weeks, there's been a lot of excitement about our largest shareholder and an off-taker, Z1 Yapa, signing a five-year off-take deal to supply lithium hydroxide to Tesla. So I think quite reasonably, the market sees through that as core very likely to be part of Tesla's supply chain in the future as we supply concentrate to Yapa and Yapa supplies lithium hydroxide to, to Tesla to meet their needs in the future. You know, obviously, you know, there's a lot of interest in, in Tesla and its impact on, um, on the makeup and the production of, of vehicles around the globe and as the highest value car manufacturer. And I think it is quite exciting. I, I think it's quite justified that the market's getting excited about core, core's potential to be involved with that as we look to produce you know, high-quality concentrates lithium concentrates out of the project as early as as next year, 2022. And how much of your planned production is going into that offtake agreement? So our our binding offtake with Yapa is for currently it's about 40% 40 of our production capacity. So it's for 75,000 tonnes per annum of lithium concentrate. So that leaves us with, with the current capacity of the project of 100,000 tonnes, and it's what we've found more recently is there's, there's been a lot of 
growing interest, yeah, very competitive interest from you know, all the way through the, the lithium battery and EV supply chain for access to that uh, that remaining product. And in some ways, we're looking about uh, given that level of demand, our book, if you like, is full and overflowing. Given that extra demand, we're we're seriously looking at increasing the capacity of the project, which comes with with both the success that we've had in growing the resources and the reserves of the project, but also the the ability to sell that product, the demand for that product. Yeah, okay. So that was actually going to be my my next question. So 175,000 tonnes per annum of SC6 is relatively small. So given the resource potential, given the demand potential, you you feel you could uh, increase that over time, yeah? In the short term, that's definitely a an item that we're giving consideration to in the, the definitive feasibility study update that we're doing at the moment. And we think it's quite feasible for us to be increasing uh, production capacity by in the order of 30% without significantly changing the startup capex of the project. And then I think long in the medium term, with further investment into exploration and resource drilling, the project could you know, substantially change its production capacity and increase its production profile in the future. Brilliant. Okay. So um, I, I think you alluded to the fact that there's been quite a lot greater interest in, in the project from the supply chain over the last six months or so. In terms of potential partners, are you finding OEMs engaging directly with you or is it still primary, primarily converters or, or, or cathode makers? And in terms of the sort of groups that you are engaging with, are there any sort of geographical trends that you're seeing? Yeah, that's a really good question, Matt. Uh, and that, that profile has changed significantly over the last six months. I would suggest in previous years, you know, a lot of our com- conversations and engagement have been with the direct customers for our physical customers for our product, um, you know, converters in, in China, and we've developed some great relationships, including Yahua, as part of that process. In the last six months, both geographically, that range of interest has grown, uh, you know, and we're engaged with parties, uh, not only in China, but in Japan, Korea. You know, the US and, and now in Europe. And we are also engaged in, in just about every level in the EV supply chain from converters, cathode manufacturers, battery manufacturers, and, and OEMs themselves. So it's pretty exciting times. There's, um, yeah, it's pretty, frankly, we're inundated with interest for, for the remaining product for the project. It's pretty exciting. All those themes that we've uh, been thinking about over the last couple of years in regards to lack of investment in supply and uh, you know, very few advanced suppliers like Core being able to get their product to market is now starting to be recognised more broadly. That's certainly happy days after the last two two to three years, which uh, let's face it, have been a little bit tough for the industry. Yeah, agreed. No, we're, we're really looking forward to um, you know, finalising those processes, engaging with the right partners that sort of bring the right balance, if you'd like, to what we're trying to achieve as a company, as a project. And it really does feel like the you know, start of this year's um, the market and finance markets are, are very strongly supporting the development of new projects and new supply like for. Getting back to the stock, what would you say are going to be the next important catalyst for the stock over the next six months or so? 
probably the one that we've seen that's that this increase. I think firstly is going to be the lithium price. I think we're going to see a significant increase in the lithium price from from the lows of 2020. So I, I think that's going to be pretty significant, not not only for core but for the whole of the sector. I think more specifically to core, we've got resource drilling results that we're waiting on that should come come to us over the next few weeks that will lead into a resource upgrade and then an update of our feasibility study early in the second quarter of this year. I would think quite significantly, we're significantly targeting FID, so final investment decision on the project towards the middle of this year. And then, as I said, my read on the markets over the last few weeks is that we will get strong support for us to be moving the project into construction in 2021. And as you know, Australia's most advanced new lithium project, we're in the box seat, if you like, to be leading into a, an increasing lithium price and an increasing demand from a global market. Excellent. And uh, just to get a, a, an update, just to sort of interject into there, what, what do you think is your construction timeline for the project? Yeah, so from a standing start at FID, uh, we're probably looking about 12 to 15 months from FID to first production. What we might find, though, is that you know, with the impetus in markets that we have, it's likely that we'll get encouragement from both finance markets and and our customers to sort of expedite that, that process. So there may be some opportunities to expedite that. Just one final question. It seems a, a little bit of a strange question with the stock up 300%, but what do you think that investors are missing with the stock's current valuation? Yeah, I think there's there's a number of opportunities that the, the markets should be looking for around core, which include a potential to engage with some of the highest profile brands in the EV and lithium battery supply chain over the next few months. There will be substantial resource growth that potentially leading to a step change in the life of mine and the production capacity of the project, you know, and therefore the revenues of the project. There's starting to be a recognition that because of CORE's investment in the project over the last five years, we now have you know, the most advanced new lithium project in Australia. So it's de-risked, it's approved. It's really, a, it's, you know, really the, the hurdle is a financing one um, over the next few months. The gap between where we are now and construction and the hurdles to do that, to, to those um, diminishing rapidly in the market that we're in currently. And I would suggest what we're doing at the moment also lays the foundation for the project to be a very long-term producer company and the project be a long-term producer of concentrate and lithium chemical adjacent to Australia's closest port to to markets in, in Asia and Northern Hemisphere. Excellent. Well, Stephen Biggins, Managing Director of ASX Listed Core Lithium, thanks very much indeed for your time today. Great, Matt. Thanks for your interest. Appreciate the questions. Look forward to updating you and your audience uh, in the future. Cheers. Thanks, Matt. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for January. You can get more detail on any of the topics I've covered in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.